Peter chapter 4 is where we are this morning. 1 Peter 4, and Peter has been talking about suffering. Now, suffering, most of the suffering that he's been talking about has been persecution-style suffering. We're going to actually talk a little bit about that, but we're going to also talk about a different level of suffering, one that's more, um, one that's more like take up your cross and follow me kind of suffering. Because the fact of the matter is that, that we suffer, and we suffer in different ways, but this morning I want to focus not just on the suffering, but on how we act within the suffering, how we are to be stewards. So stand with me as we read 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to read verses 1 through 11 together. 1 Peter 4, 1 through 11. This is God's word. If you let it, it will change your life. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Pray with me. Father, we pray that that would certainly be true of us that we would glorify God, that we would glorify you through your son because to you belong all the glory. Father, use your word in this time to shape us, to bring you the maximal amount of glory. Work in us in this time. In Christ's name, amen. You know, um, when I started to study this passage, I thought, well, this kind of sounds like two different passages, right? Verses 1 through 6 really focus in on suffering, but verses 7 through 11 more focus on uh, uh, this idea of stewardship. And as I studied it, I began to realize that the two go hand in hand. That, that you don't, you're not a good steward of the grace of God, as verse 10 puts it, without going through suffering. In fact, I would argue today that God expects us to be good stewards within the context of suffering. He doesn't expect us to be good stewards just because things are going well. He doesn't expect us to be good stewards just because everything is lining up and it's all hunky-dory. Anybody can make money when the market is up. The question of your investment strategy is how do you do when the market goes down? 
Do you fare well when things are tough? Does your life strategy, does the, does the meaning of your life hold up when everything else is falling apart? That's where the test comes. It doesn't come when things are going well. Anybody looks like a good sailor when the waters are smooth. But what happens when a storm arises? Can you navigate through the waves and the wind? God wants us to be good stewards. In fact, he, let me not sugarcoat it. He demands it of us. We are to be good stewards even in the context of suffering. Look at look, the, a couple of points about the suffering that this passage shows us. Uh, verse 1, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. That's the representative of suffering. You know, we're not suffering on our own. We're not suffering being the first ones to ever go through it. We're not suffering what maybe one or two other folks have suffered in the past, but it's really not very common. We're not one out of a million who are suffering. No, everybody suffers, but we have one representative in Jesus Christ who has suffered that we can look to. Because not only did he suffer, he suffered as a good steward of God's grace. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. What Peter is saying is that our suffering is a reflection of the reality of Christ's suffering. And that the context in which we are to steward is in the midst of that suffering. We don't just steward when times are good. We steward when we're suffering. Not only do we find the representative of suffering in verse 1, look at the next phrase. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. That's the requirement of suffering. See, suffering demands something of us. It demands of us that we approach it in the right way. It's not just enough to think the right thoughts. we got to have the right mode of thinking. Carrie has a 3D printer in her school in her robotics lab. Just got it not too long ago. And it was messing up. It was, it was printing bad. It doesn't matter how good the design is that goes in. If the printer isn't set right to separate the right amount of level, to, to line up precisely, all those things, then the product is not going to work. It's going to be messed up. If the settings are wrong on the machine, it doesn't matter how good the inputs are. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how good the design is. It, it always comes out flawed because there's a problem with the machine. So we got to go fix that. We got to set it to the right setting. We got to figure out how to make it do right. Because until then, nothing that she prints is going to on that printer is going to work right. It's all going to be messed up. We can try to have the right kind of thoughts, but if we don't have the right kind of thinking, well then the whole motivation behind those thoughts is wrong and, 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 and our suffering is going to be in vain. No, no, we need the right mode of thinking. And in fact, he doesn't just use any kind of language here. That arm yourselves, what he's saying is get dressed for battle. Put your armor on, get your weapons ready, you're going in the fight. It's military language. It's war preparation language. You're going to suffer and it ain't going to be easy. You better have the right way of thinking in. What thinking is that? Well, Jesus showed us. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, 
but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And when being found in human form, he humbled himself. Do you get the idea that this mode of thinking doesn't put you on top? You should. Because the right kind of thinking, the kind of thinking that we need to be good stewards in the midst of suffering is the kind of thinking that humbles us. It's the kind of thinking that puts others before ourselves. It's the kind of thinking that humbles us to obedience. Obedience that even leads to death on a cross. You can't do that being proud. You can't do that being haughty. You can't do that being arrogant. You can't do that with a head that's way too inflated. You can't do that only looking out for your own interests. You can't do that thinking everybody owes you something. If you're going to live the way that God wants you to live and be a good steward in the context of suffering, you have to be humbled. Look look back at verse 1 again. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. If any man follows me, Jesus says he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. There must be a willingness to suffer with the result of suffering being that ceasing from sin. Peter isn't claiming that we will be perfect, just mature. He's not claiming that you will never sin ever again. He's saying if you want to stop sinning, if you want to stop living a kind of life that is infested with sin, you have to, have to, have to be humble. If you're not suffering on account of your faith, then you're not maturing in your faith. Now that's all suffering from the inside, isn't it? That's kind of suffering like denying yourself, taking up your cross kind of suffering. By the way, what does that end up doing? The the result is ceasing from sin, but there's some ongoing effects too, some repercussions of that suffering. And we find those in verse 2. So as to live. The ongoing effect of our suffering is that we will live. How? Live in the flesh but not for the flesh. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, as long as we are walking on this earth, the repercussions of this suffering, of this denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following after Jesus, the repercussions of that is so that all the rest of the time that we live on this earth, we will not live for human passions, for fleshly desires, for our sinful nature. We're not going to live for that anymore. We're going to live now for the will of God. It it completely changes our focus. We don't focus on living for ourselves. We now live for Him. Not like we used to. See, because there's also also this routine to suffering. Because not only are we denying ourselves, sometimes the suffering comes from outside. And it often comes in this way. Look at verse 3. For the time... That is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. All that evil stuff that people want to do before Christ, all that stuff that people want to do in their fleshly natures and their human desires, all of that stuff, time's over for that. You used to live that way. 
But now not anymore. Verse 4, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. You start living different. Because of the difference that Christ has made in you, it's going to shock some people around you. You can't put fish in brand new water because it'll shock them. You have to let them acclimate first. So you, you bring them home in the little bag. You get the aquarium all set up. You put the, the stuff in there to balance out the water just right so that it's safe for them. And then you stick the bag in the water and you let the fish swim around for 15 or 20 minutes in the bag because it'll shock the fish if you pour them straight in. But letting the water acclimate to the same temperature, it's a lot easier on the fish. That's, that's not what happens when you live for Christ. When you live for Christ, you shock them. You throw them into a whole different kind of water. And often the response, they malign you. They talk about you evil. They say things that aren't true. Maybe they say things that were true. Oh, you're just a hypocrite. I've seen the way you live. I've seen how you talk to your wife. I've seen what you do to people when you get upset. Sometimes it's not true at all. The early church was accused of eating babies because they would take babies that were left for dead in trash cans on the side of the road. They'd take them in, love them and care for them. People on the outside didn't know they were loving them and caring for them. They thought they were eating them. And then they heard these things about the eating uh, uh, this communion thing that has the blood and the body of Jesus. They were maligned. Some of that was probably just people wanting to discredit Christianity. Some of it was probably people just didn't know any better. But that's often how it happens. Now, verse 5 reminds us, though, and, and, and we got to be careful because it's so easy to point to them and say that this is true, but we forget it's true about us too. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. You see, they may mistreat you because of the difference in you, but they're going to have to give an account. We say amen, right? That's wonderful. God is going to vindicate us, but we often forget that we are going to give an account for how we live too. And so it's a caution to us to make sure that we are the good stewards in the midst of our suffering. That we're not just being good stewards when everything's going well, but that even when we're being persecuted, we are still stewarding God's grace with excellence. So how do we do that? How do we do that? Look at verse 6. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. Raise your hand. Raise your hand. If you were dead in your sins before Christ, I'm going to tell you something. That was us. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. You really want to know the critical difference between someone with Christ and without Christ? It's though they're judged in the flesh, they live in the spirit. You see, God has judged the sin and he's judged the sinful nature. But we've also passed through the blood of Christ. And so we do not, we are not subject to the wrath of God, that judgment upon sin anymore, because now we are without sin. It's not because we've done it. It's not because we've shaken it off of ourselves or we've gotten all the sin off or we had just some really great soap that just cleaned us up real good. No, it's the blood of Christ that has cleansed us from all our sins. And because of that difference, it is the gospel that makes us good stewards. It's the gospel. 
It's not just the gospel that makes us a child of God. It's not just the gospel that, that brings us into his family. It's not just the gospel that turns us from a sinner into a saint. It's the gospel that enables us to steward the life of God now living in us. It makes us good stewards even while we're suffering. The life-changing power of the gospel doesn't stop with our salvation. It moves all the way through our sanctification and on to our glorification. That's why the gospel is preached. Not only makes us a good steward of our suffering, not only makes us a good steward of God's life in us, it makes us a good steward of some other things too. It makes us a good steward of ourselves. Verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. That doesn't mean it's happening immediately. This was written almost 2,000 years ago and all things haven't ended yet. Okay? This isn't like a temporary end time. It's almost here, but it is coming. Therefore, be self-controlled. We steward ourselves. How can you steward yourself? The gospel. You see, you don't have any control over your sinful nature, but when Jesus gets a hold of you and the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within you, now you have a mechanism to exercise power over that sinful nature. See, it's the Holy Spirit living in you that empowers you and equips you to control yourself. To steward yourself. Not only ourselves, we steward our attention. Boy, this is hard. How hard is it to stay focused? Sometimes it's really hard. Be self-controlled and sober-minded. That's sober-minded. The Greek phrase is literally not drunk. To be not drunk in your mind. That I don't think he's just saying don't drink so much that you can't think straight. I think he's saying, don't let anything control your mind. How do you do that? The gospel. Heard a story yesterday. Guy was talking about taking flying lessons and he's up in the cockpit and the flight instructor's right there and the flight instructor um, is kind of a harsh guy and use language accordingly. So I'm not, you know, I'm not gonna throw in all the words that he threw in, but at one point, they got up to altitude, they're cruising along, and man, that's the easy part of flying, he said. You, all you basically got to do is hold the steering wheel. You know, you don't maybe make a little adjustment every now and then as you need to, but he said, all right, now now we're up to cruising. We're going to get our maps out, and, and we're going to uh, set our instrumentation for where we're going and, and all that, okay? So he says, get the maps, and the maps are on the back of the seat. So when he goes to turn the back of the seat, he takes his hands off of that wheel to fly the plane. And if you don't fly the plane, it starts to go down. You gotta keep it up. It's not just cruising along the same height. You gotta keep that nose tilted up just a little bit because if you don't, it's gonna go down. And if the nose goes down, the rest of the plane goes down too. That's not a good thing. So he turns and he's got both his hands trying to get the maps out of the back of his seat and the plane starts to go down. And with, I'm sure, a lot of other colorful language, the flight instructor says, fly the plane! You gotta fly the plane! This happens several times. He's going to get something, he takes his hand off, fly the plane! See, here's what happens. Oftentimes in Christianity, we get so distracted by all of the other things. They might be good things. They might be important things. They might be things that we need to do, things that matter. But we get distracted from the main thing. We don't fly the plane. I'm going to tell you something. 
That is so hard for someone like me because there are so many things and it's so tempting to get distracted. We have to steward our attention. How do we do that? We got to stay on the gospel because when we get off the gospel, all kinds of other stuff matters. When we get off the gospel, there's a thousand other things to focus on. When does Peter sink into the waves? When he takes his eyes off Christ. We have to keep our attention focused on the gospel. And so if we remind ourselves of that gospel and we keep it before us and we're constantly looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, we won't get distracted. We won't take our hands off the wheel. We'll fly the plane. We need to steward our attention. And the gospel will help us do that. We also need to steward our relationships. You might not have thought of it that way. Stewardship is often about money, things, possessions. But we need to steward our relationships. Two ways, verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Why? Because love covers a multitude of sins be surprised how much someone can get away with when you love them. No, you wouldn't. They can do all kinds of stuff. When you love them, you find a way to look past all that, don't you? Part of the problem of church life is the people. People aren't always great. People aren't always like Jesus. Sometimes it's the pastor people. Sometimes it's the member people. Sometimes it's all the people. Every single church I've ever been a, been a part of has had problems. And every single one of them has had people. I thought about starting one with no other people, but then I'd be the problem. But love, love doesn't just pretend the sins aren't there. It doesn't hide them under the rug. It doesn't put them off in a corner and shut the door. Love covers them. The idea being, love helps you see past them. When we were... When we were dating, someone told me, you got to be careful because, and, and this wasn't specific to Carrie. He said, because when you re have feelings for someone, you miss their faults. I don't know what he was talking about. Um, I didn't get one without, with, with any faults, so there you go. She did. She got one with a lot of faults. But it's really easy to overlook the bad when you genuinely care for someone. Steward your relationship. Love them. How do you love them? Everybody say it with me. The gospel. Go ahead and say it. That's how you love them. Because God does. But another way. Verse 9. Show hospitality to one another. If that ended there, that, that'd be a perfect verse. I'd be, yeah. It's too bad he put without grumbling. Because boy, does that make it a lot harder, doesn't it? How do you do that? How do you show someone hospitality and not grumble? Say it with me. The gospel. By the power of Christ working in us, we can show hospitality to one another and really not complain. Sometimes it's hard, even with the gospel. But through Christ working in us, we can. We steward our relationships by the power of the gospel. Finally, we steward our gifts by the power of the gospel. One of my favorite verses is 1 Peter 4.10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another 
as good stewards of God's very grace. He says, I've given you gifts. I didn't give them to you just to have them. I didn't give them to you to enjoy them. I didn't give them to you so you could brag about them. We have gifts to serve one another. God gifts his children so they will utilize their gifts for the benefit of their brothers and sisters in Christ. And it doesn't matter what the gift is. Look at verse 11. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength of God. It doesn't matter what your gift is. Now, no, the gift of gab is not a gift. The gift of complaining is not a spiritual gift. The gift of knowing just how they should do it is not a spiritual gift. But God has gifted you. Even if you think, but I'm old and I, I've done so much work for God, there, there's really nothing else I can do. I mean, my back, back is bad and I can barely get around and I've got all kinds of health issues. There's nothing really I can do for God. Please, please, you may not be able to compete against me and George in our slam dunk competition. But God has given you gifts and you can serve him and serve each other with those gifts. But why did he give us those gifts? It wasn't just to serve one another. See, here's the, here's the interesting thing about, here's the interesting thing about a steward. The steward always, always, always manages someone else's stuff. They don't manage their own. A steward doesn't own the property. A steward doesn't own the money. A steward doesn't own the business. A steward doesn't own the family. The steward doesn't own any of it. The steward always manages it for the owner, which means that the job of the steward isn't to glorify himself, isn't to raise his own estate, isn't to make himself rich or give himself a better position. The steward always maximizes the benefit of the stuff for the owner. And God's the owner of everything. Amen. See, he's the one. Do you not know? Have you not heard? You have been bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Greater love has no man than this. He laid down his life for his friends. And I have called you friends. Into verse 11. In order that. Why do you use all these gifts? Why do, why do you do all these things? Why do you steward all these things? in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. When God calls us to steward ourselves, our attention, our relationships, our gifts, even our suffering, he calls us to do it for him. The psalmist put it this way, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. God, God we don't want to be glorified. Glorify yourself. Are you stewarding in the midst of suffering for God's glory? Are you stewarding yourself for God's glory? Are you stewarding your attention for God's glory? Are you stewarding your relationships for God's glory? Are you stewarding your gifts for God's glory? Maybe you just need to wonder at the gospel once again. Let it captivate you. Turn your heart toward the one for whom you are to steward. Maybe you need to come to Christ in repentance and trust him to save you from your sins. We're going to pray, and then I'm going to invite you, whatever God's doing, steward his grace well. Follow him. God, this is your time. Work in us. As we sing, I pray.
pray that the words of our hearts and the meditations of our mouth would be pleasing to your sight. Help us to follow you. In Christ's name, amen.